0: Today is the birthday, as you know, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're at a META retreat. So I'd like to talk about META and the life and work of Dr. King. And explore that this evening in in a number of different ways. Maybe I should start just by giving a little bit of a personal background in relationship to uh, Dr. King. My parents were, and I was living in the Washington, D.C. area, Uh, at the time of the 1963 march. And my uh, parents, I think particularly my father, was a leader, and he may have been the president of uh, the sort of religious-spiritual organization that we were part of, which was called Ethical Culture. Some of you may know of that, in Washington, D.C. And so my parents were invited to be at the front of the march along with other religious leaders in the 1963 march in Washington. And uh, they actually were able to, I think, both be at the beginning of that march and I think be 10 feet away from Dr. King when he gave his I Have a Dream speech. I was a kid and they invited me to come along they gave me the choice and i and my brother wanted to play (laughs) probably baseball or something and so i missed a certain moment of history But still, that was very. Um, the issues were were very much there. The uh, you know, my mom, particularly my mother, Bernice, was very involved with issues of race, social justice, poverty. worked with Head Start. Worked for a lot of years on um, school desegregation in the schools. They moved from the D.C. area to Richmond, Virginia at the time of federally ordered uh, desegregation. And my mother worked for 10 years within the school system doing what we would now call diversity training, uh, among other things. And so very involved. And, um, you know, I was brought up really being attentive to those issues, but not forced to go to marches. (laughs) And so later... uh, I met uh, many of the people connected with Dr. King, uh, Bayard Rustin, spent, you know, time with him. Uh, the, the only time I, I went to summer camp, uh, my parents um, had me go to New York City for summer camp, but not your usual, you know, location. But... Um, of of the kids there is about half black and half white. And a lot of them were fresh from the civil rights movement as, you know, as, as kind of teenagers. And a lot of the the counselors were also very involved. So it was, it was very much there. I think at that camp, we met Bayard Rustin later. I I studied some with uh, James Lawson, who probably had the most disciplined use of nonviolence in the civil rights movement and met others who were involved like George Lakey. So it's been a, a big influence on me, and I've been um, very interested, particularly in the connection of dharma practice and teachings, and the teachings of Dr. King, Gandhi, um, traditions of nonviolence. And some of you know I have taught some at Spirit Rock, particularly with my colleague Kazuhaga, Haga, who... Uh, some of you may know who wrote a very, uh, very good book on on nonviolence, called uh, "Healing Resistance." And I have found, and we have found, that there are some amazing parallels between uh, our practices of metta and our other Buddhist practices, and the life and work and teachings of Dr. King. And so I want to explore those in in a few ways. And I'm realizing that this is the second uh, meta retreat in a row where we've explored these themes. Last year, uh, my colleague, our colleague, Kyra Jolingo, was part of the team. And she brought her father in by Zoom, uh, Al Lingo, who had been on the staff with Dr. King, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the 1960s for, I think, four years. And so he worked every day with Dr. King, and he um, gave some of his recollections, and Kyra Jewell made the connections with uh, Dharma practice. So I want to do that uh, tonight in three main ways. And I want also to um, bring in some of the actual words via recordings from Dr. King. So the three ways I wanna bring this in are first to speak about the connection between our metta practice and the way that for King, love in the Christian context was at the center of everything. So, very close connections between what we call metta and what we call love. Some teachers use the terms interchangeably. So I want to to look at that. Uh, Secondly, I want to explore the core uh, wisdom teachings and show how they're very powerful parallels between the teachings about Dukkha and the end of Dukkha from the Buddha and the teachings that we have from Dr. King, particularly about the nature of nonviolence, essentially that we learn to increasingly to live and act from love and non-reactivity in our lives. And there are differences that also, of course, between the approaches that that I'll, that I'll bring out. And then, thirdly, I want to come back to look at the other qualities of the awakened heart. We've looked at compassion and uh, mudita, or sympathetic or appreciative joy, and equanimity. I want to look to how those appear in the life and work of Dr. King, and also bring in a few other qualities, particularly uh, empathy and forgiveness, which are part of that extended sort of family of heart practices. You know, with traditional Buddhist practice, there's more emphasis on uh, the inner practice and inner transformation there's a strong ethical component of non-harming. We could call that non-violence with Buddhist practice, but there's not really per se a concept of justice in, the same, in anything like the same way we have it in Western tradition. <clears throat> and then with Dr. King, there's uh, not as much an emphasis on systematic contemplative transformation, more on social transformation. And what I'll suggest is that this all points to a natural integration of the two, right, which is actually, in my view, what's deeply needed at this time, right? So that'll be also pointing to the, to. That possible integration. Another commonality is that there's a sense that human beings have a natural, innate, inborn energy that takes us towards freedom. We don't have to manufacture that, it's in our being which is um, very good news, although we have to know that for ourselves, right? My words can only go so far for you and for, and, and for myself as well. So, you know, we have uh, with the words from Dr. King, some of you remember the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Many of you know that. And with, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, of course, the very name of the Buddha points to awakening. The word Buddha means, as it were, the awake one. This is from the uh, Dhammapada those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, are luminous and completely liberated in this life. And then uh, from Achancha, from the Thai forest tradition, who I was also privileged to spend time with, the teacher of Jack Cornfield and uh, Kitsasaro and Tinisura, uh other teachers as well. And this is how he said it with, with a, his usual uh, humor. We are practicing to reach the mind, the old mind. This original mind is unconditioned. It is unwavering. It is tranquil. Practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. (laughs) It is finding our, our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena by nature, perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. So again, in our practice, we're not so much creating metta, but uncovering it, that's the that's the understanding. And I think there's something very similar for for Dr. King. Many people think of Dr. King as the greatest moral and spiritual figure in the history of the u s. And I hope you I, I know we have some people from not from the u s, so I hope this is not overly what uh, ethnocentric, that uh, Dr. King really, really belongs to the world. The great uh, Jewish uh, teacher and writer, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched with Dr. King and in, in Selma. He said that the future of America depends on the American response to the legacy of Dr. King. So I'll bring us into some familiarity now with Dr. King by playing a portion of him reading from Letter from a Birmingham Jail from 1963.
1: While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope ...will be patient in reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham... ...but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern... ...for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States... It's ugly record of brutality is widely known. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme, Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? When you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted And your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park and see her developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white in color. And your first name becomes nigger. Your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. And you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait You assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied. And
0: our echoing demand. Let's take a few moments and just uh, sit with whatever is there for you. So the first area that I want to explore in more depth is the connection between our metta practice and the centrality of developing and acting out of love for Dr. King. We might say the centrality of metta and love in all parts of life, including as a way to meet uh, difficulties or um, to meet even hatred and injustice. Some of you know from the Dhammapada, uh, this line, Hatred never ends through hatred. By love, that's the translation, literally non-hatred. By love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth, that's from the Buddha. Hatred never ends by hatred, by love alone does it end. And from Dr. King's, this is relevant for our, our our day with a difficult one. <laughs> we thought some of the practice with a difficult person was challenging. Well, Dr. King had a few difficult people. <laughs> so this is what he says, though, really, again, based in uh, the teachings of Jesus and the, you know, the teachings about relating to so-called enemies in a different way. By the way, uh, I don't think we said this in the hall, but the term difficult person in metta practice is not a literal translation of what we find in the uh, Pali, or what we find in the uh, text about metta. The actual term is the enemy. But, but uh, in, the, in the West, that has connotations almost like being uh, a military opponent or something. But it, I think uh, Gula and I were talking, but I think in the uh, context of what's now India, one might have a so-called enemy and that would be the translation, but it would be more like the person in one's neighborhood who's kind of a nemesis but it's it's not someone one wants to hurt or kill, but it's someone, you know, anyone have at work, someone who always seems to be on the opposite side from your good plans, anyone have someone like that? Okay, I I have had that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it's interesting. So it got Westernized to be the difficult person, but the literal translation would be the enemy, right? So interesting in this context, love your enemies. So this is from Dr. King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an en- enemy by getting rid of enmity. By, the, by its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with reduct- redemptive power. And we see how for metta practice, and we'll see as well as for Dr. King, intention is right at the heart of it. You know, Our practice with metta is continually inclining towards metta as best we can, for most of us using phrases which we, by our best sense, are evocative. Of the kind heart, tend to evoke the kind heart. And we continually just come back to the intention, whatever is happening. That's what metta practice is about. It's not about saying, I will produce metta, metta better be there. It's about inclining, and then we see what happens, right? That's our practice, whether here or in our everyday lives. And intention, also very crucial for Dr. King. He said, I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. And in our practice, as we'll see um, in a little more depth tomorrow morning, the intention is to bring metta to all beings. We did that in a way with the radiating metta. But that's the aim of the practice, right? You can remember the, you know, the passages, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. You can, we can chant it together. The seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Right? The horizon is all beings. We train to get there, right? We train to get there. And again, very, very parallel. Dr. King really uh, speaks about the, the basis for this. The basis for it is really acknowledging that all in, in our meta practice, that all beings are you know, basically, what can I say? Worthy of metta, that they are, um, you know, we all have what in later Buddhist tradition became uh, named as the Buddha nature. We all have the potential for awakening. We all have, you know, as it were, a, a sacred essence in our being. And again, uh, we come to know that more and more in our, in our practice. King said something very similar. He said, there is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. And his horizon, the aim of all of his work, of course, was to bring about justice in all sorts of ways. But the ultimate aim was for him something that he called the beloved community with all beings, The horizon of his efforts was to create the possibility of the beloved community. He said it in this way. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Another line from him, this call for a worldwide fellowship, that's his word, that could be metta for all beings, right? That lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all human beings. And there's also for King in the cultivation of love, much like for us in Metta, there's a dimension of purification. You know, and I think for for us we've emphasized a lot of different dimensions. That may come up in the retreat, get purified. we've talked about the judgmental mind, we could talk about anger, um, um, sort of the residues of of grief not not that grief is negative, but there's some way that where there are residues of pain they they come up in our practice sometimes uh, sometimes from the past, sometimes related to uh, even to trauma, and for King, um, this was also part of his practice. He talked about, for example, the importance in his movement of working with anger, and it's very natural when there is oppression and injustice to have a lot of anger, uh, bitterness, reactivity, and King said that the transformation of anger is the center of our movement. It's right at the heart of it. He said the supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. And that in a way gets purified of his reactivity. And for me, when I hear Dr. King's voice, I hear that purified anger. Does that that make some sense? There's an energy there. He doesn't you know, shy away from anger, but it gets transformed. It's not reactively directed at his opponents, but the energy is there. That's that's really the purification process. And there's also a way that he does this with the judgmental mind. And I wanted to uh, play for you a uh, a short clip, uh, because for him, this is really, again, going from one of the... Uh, Teachings, I think, of Jesus, uh, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? It was really. And um, this is from um, one of his uh, sermons that's not very well known. In fact, I didn't know about it, I didn't read about it in any books. But my sister, Liz, went to Atlanta, you know, maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago to visit a friend. And when she was there, she went to the uh, King Center in Atlanta. And she went to the gift shop and she thought of getting a gift for me. Oh, her favorite practice is meta, by the way. Okay. Anyway. Um, and she looked and there were, there were a bunch of, I think, uh, old cassettes. And one of them was on, it was called unjudging. And she knew that I'd been teaching at that time for some time on transforming the judgmental mind. So she brought it home as a gift and not very well known. So I think I'll I'll play a little bit of, of this and listen for that way that this is also part of purification.
2: Cleveland to start our movement, which we're going to get started next week.
3: They had a brother there who is the leader of the nationalists, the black nationalists of Cleveland, and he had announced the date for the riot to take place. First time I'd ever seen the date set for a riot. But Brother Ahmed announced the date for the riot. And they had pledged that they were going to run me out of town, that they were not going to hear anything about nonviolence, that if I came to Cleveland, they were going to run me out. So they were set to run me out of town. But when I got to Cleveland, I had a lot of speeches around the high schools and a number of other places. And I decided that I was going right on over to Huff and meet with Mr. Ahmed and his fellows, and I was going to speak to them and talk to them as brothers. I got over there. They were ready to run me out. I didn't open my speech by criticizing them or judging them. I didn't stand up self-righteously say I'm nonviolent and you are violent. You believe in uh, riots and you are killing the Negro race and hurting the cause of civil rights. I didn't start out like that. I started out saying to Mr. Armand, I understand your frustrations. I understand your bitterness. I understand what you've gone through. I understand why you're reacting like you're reacting. And I put my arms around Brother Armit, and pretty soon Brother Armit had his arms around me. And I had my press conference the next day, and who was sitting at the press table but Mr. Armit? And the press said, now, Dr. King has talked about nonviolence and he's talked about the movement that they're going to have here in Cleveland. Mr. Armitt, since you believe in violence, what do you have to say about what Dr. King just said? He said, I want you to know I agree with him and he's my leader too. If I had gone in there cursing out Mr. Armitt, if I had gone in judging and criticizing Mr. Armitt. Mr. Arm, it would have been permanently separated from me. This is what Jesus is saying. Judge not for in your judging. You may judge yourself to be unkind, unsympathetic, unfeelingful, and unable to see the problems of others. And that leads me to the next point. Our judgment of others is likely to be unfair. Seldom, if ever, Do we know all of the facts? People act certain ways, but we seldom know why. Seldom do we look into the past. Seldom do we look into that childhood. Seldom do we look into that disappointment structures. We see them acting a certain way, and it's so easy to judge. This lady is cantankerous, she's mean. And it's so easy to judge, but why is she mean? That's Maybe true. her husband is not treating her right back Make home, that's clear. the reason she's mean. It's it so clear. easy to judge without knowing the facts. What Jesus is saying is this, judge not that in judging you judge yourself so often to be unkind. Somehow we must come to see that people are as they are so often because things make them that way. And I've seen it around again the ghettos.
0: Let's again just uh, sit for a few moments quietly. The second area I want to explore in a little bit of depth is the uh, the parallel between the core Buddhist wisdom teachings and what we find with Dr. King in terms of the understanding of nonviolence. When we look to probably what's the most central teaching for the Buddha It's about what he calls Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. It's related to the Four Noble Truths. He uses that language. And Dukkha is often translated as suffering. And it's one of the connotations of Dukkha in the text. But it, um, unless we give a very precise definition of suffering as meaning something like resistance and reactivity, if we simply talk about it as what's difficult or painful, that doesn't particularly end as a human being. We still have painful experiences and difficult experiences. So there's, there's um, a particular teaching which I think brings out what I think is the meaning of dukkha that helps us make sense of what the end of dukkha is. And I'm going to give that interpretation and talk about that central meaning of dukkha as reactivity, as the habitual pushing away, habitually, compulsively pushing away, as in the judgmental mind or other things, or grasping on to something. And that, I think, is what is right, the transformation of that's right at the center of our practice. One of the teachings which brings this out really clearly is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows, which if anyone has been around me, you've heard this a lot because it's very central. I'll be very brief with it, but it gets at this core understanding of what our practice is about. It's not about ending painful experiences. Those continue at times. It's about being skillful with painful experiences, and particularly particular learning to be increasingly non-reactive. And we've looked at that some in terms, particularly of equanimity. Teaching the two arrows goes like this. Buddha was hanging out, and as would, as hap, would happen sometimes, he would ask a question. He asked his group of practitioners, everyone at times experiences pain how does a non-practitioner differ from a prakt- skilled practitioner? They didn't answer, and so he answered his own question, which, which often happened. <laughs> and he, he said, at times, we have painful experiences. This is like being shot by an arrow, and he called that the first arrow. In that, both the practitioner and the non-practitioner are the same. Everyone at times has difficult, painful experiences, related to the body, related to our emotions, interpersonal injustice, etc. Each of us sometimes are shot by the first arrow. No difference between a non-practitioner and a skilled practitioner. What's the difference? The non-practitioner, because of that painful experience, will tend to shoot a second arrow, we would say that that person shoots that arrow at oneself or others, right? And and so I have uh, pain in my body, I may tense around it. That's shooting the second arrow. In some of the early work, that uh, John Kabat-Zinn did the first really bringing of mindfulness into the medical field. He worked with uh, people who had some kinds of chronic pain. And what they found was that a very large percentage of the pain experienced by some people with chronic pain, not all types of chronic pain, was basically shooting the second arrow. I think the figures that I, I remember were more than 50 or 60%, according to some studies. And so if they could teach people to experience the first arrow without shooting the second arrow, all of a sudden the pain goes down substantially. That would be an example of the second arrow. Or uh, what? Uh, I have something difficult happen in my life. I blame myself. I blame someone else. Those are all second arrows. You know, I... uh, I'm walking in my home. I trip over a shoe that was left in the living room. I start blaming my son or myself or whatever. That's the second arrow. I blame myself or I react. Someone says something mean to me. I think it's mean. I react right back with a mean statement. That's the second arrow. We can also see the second arrow in conflicts between people in the world. A large number of the conflicts in the world are two sides shooting second arrows at each other, and the second arrow is code for the third through the 4,000th arrow, right? And so what's the aim of practice? To learn not to shoot the second arrow which we do in a variety of ways. And I, I won't go so much into depth on that. But that's, that points to shooting the second arrow could also be called reactivity. Right? And I think when the Buddha is talking about the end of dukkha, he's talking about not shooting the second arrow, not, not being reactive. And a complete parallel, in my view, with what we find... With Dr. King and nonviolence, you know he particularly learns from uh, Gandhi, and he, you know, he takes the um, love ethic, and he says, after reading Gandhi, I realized that it could be applied to social issues. Before studying Gandhi. I thought that the love ethic was only about personal relationships. And so he said, we can bring this in and it takes the form of this tradition of nonviolence. We have received pain. We will not pass on the pain. We have received oppression. We will not pass on the oppression and yet we will act very, very strongly. That's the essence of nonviolence. Another way to say this is that um, the means and the ends have to be in accord. Can't have a good end and an unskillful means. So even if you want to get to justice, you have to have a means that is in accord with justice. And King thought that nonviolence was that way. And I see a complete parallel. With non reactivity, because it involves being with reactivity as we do in our practice, letting it be there, and in a way transforming it through mindfulness, through the the heart practices, and so forth. And this quality, this commitment to non harming, having the means be just as pure as the ends, is also very much there in Buddhist ethics. You know, the heart of ethics for the Buddha and for our practice is non harming. From the Buddha, we abandon violence in respect to all beings, those which are still and those which move. Let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, nor approve of others' killing. That's from the Buddha. From King, one must follow a consistent principle of non-injury and refuse to inflict injury on another. The action that someone else does that's unskillful is what is criticized, not the person. For King, one seeks to defeat the unjust system rather than the individuals who are caught in the system. And you know, my mom sort of raised us like that. She said, you know, it's your action that's the problem. It's not, not you. And I remember hearing the story that, uh, when my brother was five years old, my mom talked to him and said, you just did something. I think he was teasing another kid. And, you know, and he said, what you did, um, um, um is hurtful to the other. And, um, How did she say it? Um, I love you very much, but I don't like what you did. (laughs) Something like that. She distinguished between the person and the action. And the story we heard is that my brother at age five responded, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me like the other uh, parents do. (laughs) some of you know uh, Cornel West the writer and activist says justice is the public face of love that's getting really at the same thing and there's a beautiful connection also between uh, some of you know between Martin Luther King and Thich Nhat Hanh and I brought the of them together. They met in 1967 and Dr. King nominated uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. And there's, that's in their connection. And then we can read Thich Nhat Hanh talking about nonviolence in a way very similar, but a way that integrates really our practice of metta, practice of non-reactivity with non-violence. I'll just uh, just say um, one um, teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh. Non-violent action born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love is the most effective way to confront adversity. And again, I was, as I was suggesting, the integration, which we can see with Thich Nhat Hanh, of our practice of metta, of non-reactivity, with bringing, finding ways to bring that out into the world through what we find with Dr. King, I think is one of the great um, integrations needed in our time. A lot of people are acting on that you know, and bringing in other things. So just a little bit on my last piece, which is how we can find other expressions of the awakened heart with... Uh, with Dr. King. And we can find the Brahma Vihara as well as some of the other heart qualities. And some of the other ones I wanna mention include uh, empathy and forgiveness. Uh, and again, empathy is sometimes quite close to compassion. Uh, Dr. King, some of the you know, stories of his life that particularly moved me was how he really, he sought out talking to poor white people in the South and he tried to get to know them and he felt quite a lot of empathy for them he saw that basically they had been manipulated you know through the power elites had developed divide and conquer strategies that made them think that they were you know that they would benefit by being part of the you know the system of racism but in actuality they pretty much stayed poor you know, Dr. King said it like like this. Uh let's see. He spoke of talking to uh the white jailers, people who worked in the jail, for example, in Birmingham, and he talked about how their pride and psychic investment in whiteness was self destructive. They were living on the satisfaction, he said, of being white. When in reality, they were as bad off as many black people. You think you're somebody big because you're white, but in reality, you can't send your children to school. So it was a kind of empathy rather rather than a hatred. He sometimes said, that the civil rights movement was about the bodies of black folks and the souls of white folks. Interesting. And there is, again, we can, the, we can hear compassion there, and we can find the compassion throughout his life. So all of the Brahma Viharas are there. There's compassion. Um, and I think what, King brings in further is that compassion also is about addressing the systems that bring about uh, unnecessary pain and injustice. He said, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. He said, true compassion operates at that level as well. And I think that what we have with King, you could hear it and maybe in the voice, is something like what Beth talked about, a kind of fierce compassion, right? There is compassion, but it's out there in a really strong way, acting, cutting through confusion or ignorance. I would call Dr. King's compassion an example of a kind of fierce compassion. And I think it could also be very... Very, very gentle. Forgiveness was also right at the center. He said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. One who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. When we forgive, the evil deed is no longer a mental block, impeding a new relationship. Forgiveness means reconciliation, coming together again. And then the joy we looked at this afternoon, I think, you know, in the midst of being with so much injustice, being active, joy was very much present. I think it's present in the songs of the civil rights movement, and a lot of what goes on in in the churches, uh, the the prayer, and so forth. So I think we find that joy also suffuses all of what we're talking about. And I think I'll close just by talking a little bit about equanimity and then play a brief selection. Maybe we could already hear equanimity in King's voice and in his actions. I think equanimity is a very deep and powerful part of his life. Not that he didn't have difficult times. he mentions many, many times he came close to quitting and giving up, but he stayed with it. And he opened up at times to being with the fear or the confusion over and over again, which is how equanimity develops by experiences of non-equanimity. Do we know that one? <laughs> that's our yeah, that's why our basic criterion for having a good retreat is staying in the retreat. <laughs> Jack Cornfield told a story of he was visiting a retreat, and um, he he was asked or someone visited, and he was teaching the retreat and and then they asked. You know, how's uh, Jane doing? Oh, very, very well. How's uh, John doing? Oh, very, very well. You know, how is uh, Belinda doing? Oh, very, very well. And he said this for like six people. And I said, what does very, very well mean? He means they're still practicing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, There's a lot there. I mean, I told it as a joke. But there's a lot there. And so I'll close with playing... One more short selection. This is from uh, King's last speech. This is from what's sometimes called his mountaintop speech, given in Memphis, Tennessee, the day before he was assassinated. And listen for the equanimity here. I'll finish with this, and then we can just sit quietly for a few moments.
3: Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
0: So again, we'll just sit quietly for a few moments. Oh, thank you very much for your, your kind attention. And it was very nice giving a talk with Dr. King having my back, <laughs> so to speak. So we have a little less than 20 minutes for walking practice, and then we can come back for our evening chanting and uh, continued metta practice. It's going to take me a little while to take care of things here, so feel free to leave when you need to.